0: you know, one of the things that we know for sure is that a dysregulated adult can't regulate a dysregulated child. So, um, and that we coach the way we were coached. And so when you put those two things together, you end up with exactly what you're talking about. You end up with often that the adults don't actually know how to be trauma-informed because of the everything they've experienced and they, they've never seen it, right? You can't give what you don't have.
1: Welcome to the Coaches Club podcast, powered by Transform Sport, where we believe great coaches transform lives, athletes deserve great coaches, and coaches deserve great training. I'm your host, Luke Gromer, and every week we're bringing you conversations with coaches and leaders in sport. That will help you grow as an effective teacher and transformational leader so that you and your team can reach your potential. Coaches, I'm excited to welcome Megan Bartlett and Jill Loughran from WeCoach to the podcast today. WeCoach is a team-based consulting group that believes in the power of sport to positively change the world. Through coach training, program design support, evaluation services collective impact projects, and their unique expertise in trauma-informed sports, WeCoach amplifies the impact of foundations, corporations, and community-based organizations in the sport-for-good space. Megan is the founder of WeCoach, and she's a sports-based youth development trainer, or in other words, a coach of coaches. In her training, she creates experiences for coaches that highlight the unique power of sport to heal and create a more equitable and just society. And she's also a mother to her young son, Jack. Jill is a lifelong athlete and more recently, a coach and boy mom. She spent the last 10 years in sports-based youth development work with a focus on access and equity, particularly for girls. Today, we dive into trauma-informed sports, what it is, why it matters, and how we can apply it in our coaching, what's going on in our athletes' brains when they're under stress, and the importance of coaches understanding their own trauma and triggers. Before we dive into the conversation, I want to let you know about a couple things. First, if you'd like to get the podcast notes from this episode, go to transformsport.org podnotes or click the link in the show details to download a free PDF of the notes from today's episode. If you're already on my email list, just click the link in the weekly email I send out on Mondays. Second, in July, I'm launching the Coaches Club course and community. Too many coaches feel frustrated, isolated, and unsupported in their coaching. The Coaches Club Course and Community is an eight-week online cohort course and community that will help you grow as an effective teacher and transformational leader, surrounded by like-minded coaches from across sports. The course consists of eight weekly masterclasses covering specific coaching topics, four one-on-one mentorship calls with me, and a lot more. I'm only opening 12 spots for this cohort, and four have already been claimed. If you'd like to learn more, go to transformsport.org slash coaches club, or click the link in the show details. If you'd like to reserve your spot in the cohort, go to transformsport.org slash free call, or click the link in the show details to reserve your spot today. Now to my conversation with Megan and Jill. I'm confident this conversation will help you get better at teaching and leading. Enjoy the episode. All right. Uh, super excited to, to talk with you guys today. Um, First thing I would love uh, just to hear from both of you guys. Uh, first, uh, why you coach sports, what what got you into it and what's kept you into it? And then just give a really kind of brief background of your, of your coaching journey and experience in sports. Um, Jill, you want to start and then Megan, you can follow.
2: Sure. Um, so I grew up with a college and professional basketball coach as a father. Um, so it was kind of in my house, just what we did. Like it was part of the culture of the house. So my brother actually is a tennis player by trade. It's his career. Um, And I grew up playing three sports my entire life. And it was just literally what you did. I didn't know any different. Um, And so I played field hockey, basketball and softball, ended up going all the way through to play softball in college and then wanted to study abroad and that kind of all fizzled out and I I quit. I hit that phase of being burnt out. And sport kind of got that sour taste in my mouth. And I went on to travel and work abroad. And I really thought I found this passion to live and work internationally in the international ed space. So went to graduate school, got an MPA and an international ed degree and all this stuff. And the whole time I was there, I kept kind of falling back into this, I miss sport. Like there's so much power in sport that I'm missing. And I think that that could drive so many things as opposed to the ed space. I mean, obviously ed is extremely important, but I think that sport actually had a bigger piece in my life than ed actually did. So let me just look around. And so all throughout grad school, I was coaching softball um, on the high school and in like kind of like the AAU version, travel softball world um, and in the high school age group. And I found this organization online called Up To Us Sports um, and basically stalked them and said, give me a job. And they were basically working um, through a AmeriCorps service program, placing coaches in what are called sports based youth development organizations to do years of service um, in communities that didn't have the opportunity or resources to have trained coaches. And so worked there as a program officer, um, Megan Bartlett, who's on the call is one of the founders of Up To Us Sports. So that's kind of how that all came together with us knowing each other and being together today. Um, but I just believe that the power of sport is what kids need, uh, to become whole. So it's not just, you know, to be strong, to be fit, it's to be whole. Um, and I see it in my personal life every day. If I don't ride my bike or do something, I am bouncing off the walls. So it took us all over the place, but that's my journey.
1: That's awesome. Megan. Megan.
2: Uh, yeah. Um
0: Jill, you know, my my journey obviously uh intersects with Jill's a little bit. Um, but I played sport growing up, um, played soccer in college, went to grad school and was a graduate assistant coach uh, for a women's soccer team, which was basically like coaching myself in college. <laughs> um, but it was like my way to not give up on my uh, athletic career. Um and I I you know, then thought that was the end. I was done with grad school. I thought that was the end of coaching. Um, and I really very honestly more or less tripped and fell into the sports based youth development world because a friend of mine who was actually the boyfriend of a college teammate said, Hey, I know you're done with grad school. I know you don't have a job yet. Do you want to come coach some soccer in this community, this neighboring community to where you live? And I said, sure. Um, and it was for a program called America Scores um, in the Boston office. Uh, and I went and uh, helped run their summer camp. And then I've been in the sports based development world for 15 years <laughs> um, uh, based on that phone call. So that fall, I went to and became the program director there. Um, I then went to work at the National Office of America Scores um, doing coach development, um, basically uh, working on. Uh, America Scored ha- scores had 13 offices. And so how do we do a better job of preparing the coaches in all 13 cities to be effective at delivering the program? And then as Jill mentioned, I left America scores with two other folks and we started up to us. And then after about 10 years, I left up to us and now we're together at WeCoach um, where our focus is basically all things coaches. How do we help coaches do their work better? Um, and with a particular focus on how do we help coaches do their work better by um, encouraging them to understand uh, the neuroscience involved in healing, in the power of stress, uh, the power of sport to heal from overwhelming stress. Um, so, over the last year, obviously, a lot of kids have had a lot of stress, um, and we think that sport now na- has always been, but is now even more so, uh, just an essential part of a young person's experience from how how they're able to do in school, how they're able to do in other parts of their lives, and I think maybe to Jill's point, how they can be the their most whole or the their best selves.
1: Yeah, that's. That's fantastic. I love that. Um, cool. Just to hear your journey and, and about we coach and what you guys are doing. And uh, it, it's so needed. And, and like you talked about, um, especially in light of COVID um, it's increasingly relevant. Um, just how critical it is that one kids have, have that venue and that Avenue of sport, but then also that coaches understand how to navigate the challenges that kids inevitably bring with them into your practice and your games. Um, so maybe let's just start there with either of you guys talking about, yeah, the impacts of COVID and and how that is playing out with youth sports and what coaches should be considering.
0: Um, so I think obviously the ways in which COVID has affected the youth sports world are just you know, varied and multiple, Um, you know, it's intersected with youth sports in lots of ways and not everybody's experience with that has been the same. Some people have been able to keep playing. Some people have totally not played for a year. Um, People's access, you know, that depending on where you live and how safe your neighborhood is and how much space you have and, and all of those things make a huge difference in your ability to keep playing over the last year um, as, as do resources and the ways in which communities are adversely affected by the economic fallout of the pandemic, um, also has an an important impact on whether or not young people can keep playing, which sort of puts us in the position where it, it can be true that the young people who need it the most, because they've been disproportionately impacted by the pandemic and the fallout of the pandemic are least likely to have it. Right. So one of the things that I think is most important about what's happened with COVID is that the gap between the haves and the have nots has continued to grow in terms of opportunity and um, and sort of access to how powerful this tool can be. Um, And then, you know, compound that with when you don't have access or opportunity and you need it from the to help sort of mitigate the the mental health, physical health out, um, impact of the pandemic, then, you know, I think that's where you start to really see the value of sport showing up, um, and the value of coaches to be the lifeline for young people who don't otherwise have a lot of opportunities, who can make sure that even if they just get outside, move their bodies and they stay connected to their teammates, they stay connected to their coach. Uh, we know how buffering, that can be in terms of the overwhelming stress of the last year. So I think um, I think the you know the we know that lots of young people were suffering from overwhelming stress from other parts of their lives already. Um, that's been exacerbated by COVID, and unfortunately, those who for whom that is most likely to be true also have the fewest opportunities. And so um, where coaches have been able to stay in those young people's lives, we see, I think, significant um, buffering from stress, significant healing, um, the power of physical activity, relationships, and sort of manageable patterns of stress when this COVID is not man- at all manageable for anybody. Right? <laughs> Predictable, a little predictability in this world, unpredictable space. I think um, we know that is so powerful and is going to be something that coaches really need to be thoughtful about when kids do get to come back.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Jill, is there anything you would like to add to that?
2: I think that uh, one other thing that we have definitely spoken about, and it it piggybacks off of all the things that have been exacerbated throughout the pandemic, but I think just the renewed fight for racial justice and how the sport world um, has really kind of run with Kind of being advocates around that, and how young kids of color, specifically Black kids in this country, um, are are really feeling the effects of COVID in a a different way, Um, along with seeing a lot of these things on their phones and on TV and being re-triggered by a lot of these instances of either police brutality or um, instances of systemic oppression that we are seeing constantly going on in this this moment. And so there's a lot of, I mean, Megan said overwhelming stress, but just significant traumas that we're seeing across the board for young people. that I think coaches can play a really important role in as well.
1: Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And that, that really segues perfectly into my next question. I know that one of your guys' big focuses that we coach is what you call trauma informed sport. So um, I would just love it if you could explain what that is and why it's such an important area of coach education, either one of you. Go for it, it.
2: Jill. You want me to go for it? Yeah. All right. Um, So We define trauma as um, the experience of overwhelming stress, consistent overwhelming stress, or the instances of significant overwhelming stress. Um, The importance of a coach understanding the neurological process behind that is really kind of the core component of being a trauma-informed coach. And what we mean by that is we actually teach coaches about the brain and about the science that's going on when a young person is having that spike of stress hormone that is causing this kind of disproportionate response that we are seeing when kids have what we would normally say is bad behaviors or, you know, uh, a disproportionate response when uh, they get a foul call and then they start throwing hands instead of saying what, what happened They're they're all of a sudden coming up swinging. We're helping coaches understand what's actually happening in the body um, and in the brain so that they can better respond to that in real time. And so being a trauma informed coach is actually being a brain informed coach to be more kind of just clean about it.
1: Yeah. That's really good. Uh, so will you, will you say more about that? What is happening in, in our athletes' brains when um, those things happen in sport, like you just talked about?
2: You want me to take this one too, Maggie? <laughs> sure. So um, let's give you a little, we'll give you a little brain, little brain class real quick. So basically your brain looks like your fist. Um, this is the bottom of your brain or it's your brain stem. And then it grows from the bottom to the front. And from the bottom, this is all of your rudimentary functions. So the things that you're not thinking about. So breathing, blinking, digestion, all of that good stuff. And as you move up, all of the things that your brain does get more and more complex. So the way that it grows also, it it develops as you get older. So the young people we're working with, they're not fully developed until they're like mid-adult, right? So we're talking like 25, 26 years old. So a lot of the young people we're working with, they don't have fully developed brains. So that's one of the first things that we need to keep in our heads as coaches. The second thing is once we get past this brain stem, we're in the center part of our brain known as the limbic system. Also really important to know that's the emotional center of our brain. And it's also the part of our brain that houses our stress response. So there's a little thing in there called the amygdala. Um, it's about the size of an almond and its main job is most people know fight, flight, freeze. So to know whether it's going to eat me or I'm going to eat it. And that's where a lot of our young people are living. So that's the, the strongest part of their brain because your brain actually is plastic and use dependent. So whichever part of your brain you're using the most is actually going to become the strongest. It kind of operates like a muscle, even though it isn't one um and so that limbic system is in charge of a lot of those uh, emotional interactions and then as we move up to the front it's your really your smart brain so it's the part that allows you to rationalize things to think about thinking and so when you're working with a young person who's having a reaction to something or having a stress response those fight flight freeze responses that you often think about and you ask them what's going on what are you thinking They can't think with that front part of their brain because they're operating in that middle area, that emotional center. So we help coaches try to work through different strategies to help get young people to be able to work back into the front of their brain and calm themselves down, work through that stress and get to a place where they can relate with the coach and actually um, become more resilient.
1: Yeah, I love that. Uh can I, can I, share a story about my practice last night and then ask you guys for feedback on it? Please. Uh, so I'm coaching a fourth grade basketball team and yes, obviously their brains are not fully developed. And like you just talked about, um, emotion just plays such a huge part of everything and it does in adults too, but right. It's, it's so evident in kids. So last night at practice, I I have uh, a kid and, and we're playing kind of a full court transition basketball game. And, and he's gotten quite a few, opportunities to shoot it and, and he's missed every single shot and like I can see him getting frustrated within the flow of the game and and I'm doing my best to try to reinforce uh like the decision to shoot it whether it goes in or not right I'm more concerned with did you make the right decision not the outcome and so I'm trying trying to reinforce that as we're playing um and then and then we pause uh and we stop playing that game and have a water break I go over to, to this athlete and like, he is, he is on the verge of tears. The tears are starting to flow and I go up to him and I just said, Hey, are you frustrated? He said, yeah. He said, "What?" I said, why are you frustrated? And he couldn't, he couldn't even really get words out. I said, are you frustrated because you're missing shots? Like kind of a head nod um, through, through the, the tears that were coming. And I just said, Hey, I get it. It's really frustrating to miss shots. I, I hate missing shots too. But were you open when you shot it? And I was like, yeah, I was like, okay, I'm not mad at you. Like your teammates aren't mad at you. It's great. We're all going to miss shots. And I, it, it didn't fix it. Right. And the goal for me, I wasn't, I wasn't trying to necessarily fix it, but I don't know. I would just love to hear your feet. Like, did I handle that right? Is there something I could do to handle it even, even better in a way that I don't know, gets him talking and thinking more. Cause that that's the part is I'm reflecting on it. It was me talking, but it wasn't a lot of necessarily like him, him talking or or reflecting on it.
0: Um, I think that's great. I, so generally there's like there's no right or wrong, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think there were a lot of really good things in there. And then for me, it's always a question of how can we build on that, right? How, and I like the question you're asking about how can we get the young person more involved in the processing and sort of the way, the reflection of, of what happened. Uh, two things just to think about is number one, in that moment, he may not be ready for that right? And so that's Jill's point about when, number one, because fourth graders are fourth graders, they're more likely to be in their emotional part of their brain and have less practice at being able to be rational while they're emotional, right? Which is really what we're talking about. We're asking a young person to be able to do this higher level cognitive work while a lot's going on in their emotional part of the brain, right? Which is, truly stunting their ability to access access their cortex. And so number one, giving him some practice at that by having a conversation and not having too many expectations on how he responds is great, right that's a that's a start. Um, and even if you're talking a little bit more at the beginning, just that he gets in the habit of knowing, number one, that there's no judgment, that you're not mad at him, that it's safe to be, you know, sort of to get frustrated. And then number two, that allows him to potentially in the future have more chances to practice that. One thing that you might be able to add to what you did this time is thinking about what are some ways that a young person can start to for himself say when i feel frustrated this is what happens in my body this is what happens this is how i feel and what do i do about that right and i think because uh what tends to happen is it tends to explode in some way that is in this case maybe crying which is fine he can cry but often it explodes in ways that are not actually Sort of appropriate for the situation. It might turn into something, you know, sort of that uh, disrupts the game, or it might turn into something that's like not a positive interaction between him and a teammate or another or someone on the other team or the referee or whomever. Um, in this case, he didn't have any of that, so that's fine. But in general, I think it's an opportunity to practice. Here's what I do when I feel this way right? Here's how I get myself refocused. Here's how I get my, here's how I take my 30 seconds that I need to breathe. Here's how I do whatever it is I need to do. That strategy, that coping piece to feel better. And I think encouraging coaches to think about how do we help young people come up with those things for themselves in or together with us um, and knowing what what parts of sport actually really help with that is a big part, right? We, when young people are emotional or have outbursts or have behavior that we don't like, we often separate them from the what's going on and sort of make them go sit quietly, right? None of which is biologically respectful for what they need in that moment. What they need in that moment is to get regulated and sitting quietly doesn't regulate you. They need to get, feel like positive relational connection and separating them or isolating them doesn't do that. And so how can we use what we know, which is that patterned repetitive rhythmic activity is actually what regulates us. Um, and and, And that in those moments, the great connection that you made with a young person is actually more important than sending them off to go think by themselves about what they should have done. So we encourage coaches to understand that the, the rational part comes last um, and it may not come in that moment. You may have to work up to being able to be rational in those moments, being able to reflect and, and answer questions and be able to say, I was frustrated without sort of the direction from you, but that that's okay. That's sort of normal. That's normal for a fourth grader. And um, it's good practice to have those interactions.
2: Yeah, I was actually gonna say um, that I, I thought it was awesome because a lot of times kids also need coaches to model appropriate responses to having emotional flare-ups or those stress responses because they can't yet figure it out. And so by giving him an example of a great way to either access that or release that or talk it through, you're also providing him with another tool to use um, if that works for him. So by seeing you, who he trusts, utilize that way of talking it out, naming the frustration and all of that, that's a, a great thing for you to model since like you're Megan, like we always talk about it as you're his external frontal lobe. So you're actually kind of acting as that prefrontal cortex that he hasn't fully developed yet.
1: Yeah, that's, that's good. I like, I like that analogy. And, and, and as you're both talking about that, the thing that was going through my mind was, yes, this is so essential. And we need every coach to understand these things to navigate the, yeah, the psychosocial aspects that are happening in sport constantly, and and we need coaches that can do this for themselves uh, before they can ever help athletes do it, and so obviously we we've probably all had enough experience in sport to know that sometimes the person that's worst at regulating their emotions is the coach. Um, and when that happens, yeah, kids aren't going to learn to regulate their emotions because coaches are oftentimes just operating in that emotional center of their brain too, and not, and not giving much thought to their actions. And so I guess what I'd love to talk about is uh, yeah, your guys's experience as far as, um, I guess what I trauma informed coaches, like coaches understanding their own trauma and, and the ways that they might tend to react in the context of sport and, and really how those can affect kids.
0: Uh, hey, Luke, you're, um, you're maybe 10 steps ahead of most people who talk to us about this. Um, so you know one of the things that we know for sure is that a dysregulated adult can't regulate a dysregulated child so um and that we coach the way we were coached and so when you put those two things together you end up with exactly what you're talking about you end up with often that the adults don't actually know how to be trauma informed because of the everything they've experienced and they they've never seen it right you can't give what you don't have and so we that is a key element and I think potentially one of the most unique elements or sort of something that sets us apart in our approach is that we we don't just design education programs we design experiences for people where we are doing for them what we expect them to do for young people and so we um, sort of design a parallel process by which people start to see, oh, she's not just talking about young people. She's talking about me. Oh, this isn't something you only use when you're coaching. You use it in your relationships with your family and friends. Oh, these strategies, this knowledge, this information, is to your point, essential for me to do my own work, me to do my own reflection, me to do my own ability to regulate in before I can ask a young person to regulate. And so it's not nat—it's not always a natural thing for coaches, um, but it is sort of at the foundational level. Um, if you're going to be a, a trauma-informed, healing-centered coach, you have to do your own work first.
1: Yeah. Mm. So powerful. Uh, could you maybe give me a couple examples of how you do what you're talking about for coaches? Like what what do you take them through to help them understand like, oh, this isn't just for my kids. This is for me too, to understand.
0: Uh, well, some of that, you know, we've found some of that lives in just the knowledge that, this is a biological process over which you have no control, right? Over, you know, um, a, a stress response, a sensitized stress response is something that happens on a cellular biological level. It's not something you can talk yourself out of. So if you've experienced a lot of overwhelming stress, if you've had a lot of trauma in your life and you have a sensitized stress response and when you understand that behavior is driven by that and not by choices, sorry, um, not by choices, then you start to stop blaming yourself in a lot of ways, um, stop blaming yourself for behavior that you've probably been blamed for in your life, right? People who've experienced trauma have ways of interacting with people um, often. A misunderstanding about that behavior can start sort of a vicious cycle for a person with adults, with other people, with interactions they have um, in institutions like schools and work, and they start to be you know, labeled the bad kid or the disruptive kid, and then everybody thinks they're the disruptive kid, and they feel like there's something wrong with them when what's really going on is that they're having an adaptive response to a a maladaptive situation, right? They're having an adaptive response to an overwhelming situation. And I think when coaches start to under, I think when humans start to understand that it releases a lot of power and releases a lot of responsibility and they can see themselves in that, or they can see Oh my gosh, that was that young person that I kicked off my team because I didn't I was out of strategies for them and I thought they were just being disrespectful. When I realized that's not what was going on, then they, you know, it's I think once you see the world through that lens, it's really hard to unsee it.
1: Yeah, it's really powerful. Jill, would you add anything to that?
2: Yeah, I would just say that um I've gone through uh, probably all of the trainings that Megan's written over the years, and I think she has a unique ability to create trainings that follow the process of how a coach would eventually lay out a practice plan. So there's an idea or a strategy, or there's something at the end goal that she's working towards throughout that training. And so, a lot of the We Coach trainings, it's not people just talking at you, it's interactive design of activities and. Um, like actual work that the coach is doing on their end to figure out different concepts and ideas. And then you eventually get to this goal. And so I think we see along the way, these little aha moments that the coaches are having. And I think they're actually happening on the coach's own personal level, as opposed to the kid level. But then they're able to lay that lens on top of their team because it's happening to them. But it, I, I, it's kudos to Megan's design. It's the way it's It's the arc of how that's happening. Like I did one the other night and it was with a community, um, under-resourced community, um, heavily Latino community. And there were two men grew up in the community and now are back coaching in the community. And at the end of the training, they just said, I never realized how much it hurt me that when we would lose a game, our coaches would say, well, don't worry about it. We're the kids from the hood. Like they have more resources than us but they said i never thought about it before but you made me think about it but it was because we went along this this journey of you know what are kids carrying with them what are you carrying with you mm. you know and we kind of worked through that along the way and i think they kind of get there and then are able to understand it in a different way
1: mm. wow yeah i love that that's that's such a good story let me just let me share another story with you, and that, that just triggered it for me. A couple of years ago, uh, my wife and I were in a marriage counseling session, and I don't remember exactly what we're talking about. Talking about, but I had a vivid memory flash into my mind from my first little league baseball game, and uh, I had been playing second base in this little league baseball game, and I had made a couple plays. Uh, but it was little league so we would we'd change positions all the time right and um so before one of the next innings my coach puts another kid at second base and this kid wasn't good the, everyone knew like like this kid's probably not going to catch anything and and we're like i don't know 6 7 years old like we're so young um but before we go out to take the field for that next inning uh, my coach pulls him to the side and he says hey i want you to stand right behind the second base bag and if a ball comes that way you can go ahead and step up and make the play and and, and, it, and it happened, right? Of course, ball comes that way. I step in front of my teammate that he had put in second base and I make the play and had forgotten about this memory until I'm sitting in that marriage counseling session with my wife. And I, and I literally realized like it hit me. I was like, Holy moly. Like when that coach told me to do that, like there was this internal message that I, that I internalized that I couldn't trust other people to do what needed to be done. All right. Like they can't do it. Like you just go ahead and do it. Like do what needs to be done. And I I was just taken back like, Oh my goodness. Like I was six, I was six years old. And this memory is, is coming back up to me. And, and, and I know, I'm sure that that coach was well-intentioned and he was probably there cause he, he loved the game and he cared about kids, but I think he was just so ill-equipped right. To, to not really understand the impact That your words and decisions have on a young person. And like you just shared, Julian, that, that those kids from that community, they, they had forgotten about it, but all of a sudden they remember, oh my gosh, when my coach told me, uh, it doesn't matter. We don't have the resources. Like we're from the hood. Like it it stays with you and you internalize it in in these ways that that then ultimately they play out in behaviors, right? Like there's a reason my wife and I were in marriage counseling because I'm not great at trusting people to do what needs to be done. Um not and not to blame my my coach on that. There's lots of lots of things there. But yeah, I, I think it's just it's so it is so important for coaches to just consider that. Oh my goodness, the words that I use they they have just an immense impact and and more so than than like we'll ever probably really understand or know. Yeah, I, one of my one of my last couple of questions and and Joe, I loved the story that you just shared, but I would just love to know. And, and Megan, you can start. Like, what is what has been the response from coaches in the training that you've done, and what's been the impact? More importantly, what's been the impact on kids? And and if you have any stories, I'd, I'd love to hear them.
0: Uh, yeah, I mean, I can speak a little bit about, so I, we started talking about this maybe close to 10 years ago, at which point people thought we like would look at me like I had 12 heads when I was saying that we should train coaches to understand the impact of trauma, um, particularly in communities where things like what Jill was talking about, right, the the adverse impact of institutional oppression um, is very real and very um, active, so I think it's been sort of a a slow climb um, to get people to understand the need for it until they actually hear what we have to say, right? Or until they actually hear why it's so important. And I think that piece goes back to this idea of it is relevant to every interaction you have with another human. Right, it is relevant to every interaction you have with another human, despite what you think you might know about their their experiences. The way we process information goes through these filters that are that you understand better when you understand what's going on in the brain. Um, and if and those filters get sort of clouded or disrupted by the experience of trauma. And that is an incredibly, it changes the way you interact with people. Um, And so I think the reaction has always been skeptical until, you know, we've, we had plenty of coaches with their arms folded. Like, I'm not going to learn anything here. Part of that is like training full stop, but coach training in particular is terrible. And so like, they've had terrible experiences with coach training. And so they don't want to be there. And somebody told them they're going to talk about the brain or trauma. And they're like, I don't need to talk about this. That's not my kids. Um, Or even if they can sort of see why it might be relevant to the population they're working with, they're sort of not sold until we start to talk about things and they can sort of see themselves in it. I just did a training on Thursday. That when you say a story, um, you know, I think one of the things that one of the reactions that we have a lot, and I think it's really complicated and and sort of critical in its complexity, is that one of the things that we deconstruct a little bit of is this idea of tough love. Um, And I think there has been a norm in sport around tough love that, um, excuses behavior that we wouldn't excuse in other environments. And I think we are at some level, we have a fundamental misunderstanding of the idea of tough love. We think we see, we think the tough is the part that's working when actually it's the love that's working. Um, and the tough, they get away with the tough because of the love, not, that the tough is what's driving it. Um, But on Thursday or last week, I was working with an organization, a bunch of organizations in Atlanta and New Orleans. And um, two really incredible people run a baseball program there, a guy named CJ Stewart and his wife, Kelly. Um, CJ played professional baseball and they're both from Atlanta and they're both running this program for young people there um, for young people who don't have a lot of other opportunities. And it's an incredibly Um, it's what's a beautiful organization that's doing all kinds of incredible community-based work. And they're just so well-connected and create such a incredible environment for young people. And Kelly was talking about how hard it is to convince coaches that they don't have to show young people like, teach them to be tough or teach them to be accountable or how will they learn if i don't make them do sprints or how will they learn if i don't scream in their face and and how hard it is to undo this idea that that's um that's the way they were coached and they see it as a positive right they see it as that person helped me do this thing so this must be the way that you do that and i think people forget all the people it didn't work for, right? So it worked for you, but it—if you think about it—I bet you can think about some people that it didn't work for, and it won't work for young people who've been ex- who've had too much exposure to overwhelming stress because they're just gonna dysregulate themselves right out of there. And so, um, Kelly was talking about how hard that is to undo in people. Um, And it's particularly hard um, in her experience and my experience talking to coaches for um, people who are coaching young Black men because they feel like young Black men need to be resilient to that kind of treatment so that if they're treated that way in some other part of their lives, which they are disproportionately likely to be treated that way in some other, other part of their life, That they can respond in a way that won't get them hurt, that won't get them shot, that won't get them killed. Um, And that's an incredibly powerful and important part of the work. And there's a lot going on in there. Um, And so I think, you know, most of the reaction we have to talking about this is rooted in all of the challenges that we have as a country that layer that come that show up in sport because of course they do.
1: Yeah. Wow. Uh, yeah. There's so many, so many things there that, that I'm thinking about as you're talking through that and, uh, it makes sense. We coach how we were coached for the most part.
0: And parent, how we were parented and teach the way we were taught. Yeah.
1: all those things. I think what you said is, is so profound though, that for some reason, as a society, we've, um, allowed things to happen within the context of sport that we don't allow to happen anywhere else. Um, I could not go into my English class and no. and yell at a student because they neglected to punctuate a sentence, but right. they miss a layup and it's okay for a coach to berate them. And it is, well, it is so misguided. And I also,
0: So misguided. Yeah. Even within the sport context, though, one of the things that I think we find um, for some coaches who are having a harder time seeing the connection is that when we, we don't scream at a young person for getting injured, right? We don't, you know, a young person falls down, twists their ankle, has a, you know, pops their knee, something like that. Our immediate response is not to scream at them. It's to sort of get down and try and take care of them. But behavior is often the result of psychological injury and so and behavior. So, but we do scream at behavior. We do scream at a young person who's dysregulated or exploding or um, because we think that's a choice, right? It's not a choice to get hurt physical. It's not a choice to get a physical injury but we think it's a choice to behave in a way that's caused by a psychological injury.
1: Jill, would you add anything to that?
2: Yeah, no, I was just thinking about uh, another impactful conversation that I had recently in a training where um, really smartly they invited the head of the um, referees union to come to the training on trauma. And the end of the we always leave the end of the session for what we call team time so it's an opportunity for the participants to actually guide the conversation and leave us with thoughts and questions and whatever they want to open the conversation to and it ended up being this amazing conversation between this representative and these coaches around this new understanding as to why they all felt so triggered by the refs and then they got to this place of like, wait, if we're triggered by the refs, when this big man in a, in a striped uniform with a whistle calls out a young person in front of their parents if they came to the game for the one time they came to the game, no wonder this young person is having this amazingly huge response and is stress beyond belief because they're experiencing who knows how many layers of trauma whether the the ref looks like someone who's scared them in the past they're embarrassed they're you know they feel like they've let people down it can be layer upon layer upon layer but they got to this place of understanding that when would you ever see that conversation happening right but it was so smart of them to bring those people to the table so that they could understand and then the ref just got to a place where he was able to kind of say I'm a human too. Right. And I'm doing my best, but it was really cool to see that. Um, and I know that's not a coach story, but it was another piece of the sport dynamic that came to a place of like, this is really important. I think everyone should experience this type of training to understand what's going on beneath the surface.
1: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I, that is, that's part of what we need more in coach education, right? Is having those conversations around every aspect of the game, like referees, because I think most people can agree. We've all just seen, seen where that, where that has gone. I, I have one more question and then I have some rapid fire questions that I want to ask you guys. Here's here's my last question before the rapid fires and and Jill I'd love if you started this one off um, I know another focus area for we coach is getting girls playing and keeping girls playing sport um, will you talk about why that's so important um, and why it's difficult and and how we can do a better job of it
2: That's that's a heavy that's a heavy question there Luke <laughs> um, So I realized when I was telling you about my um, trajectory in sport I left out the bit after up to us um, where I went back into kind of frontline work. So at Up to Us, I was helping place coaches that were doing the frontline work. And then afterwards I went back and worked at a variety of different sports-based youth organizations. um, One of which is now known as Dream, it was Harlem RBI in New York City, which is a baseball softball organization that also offers 360 degree youth services, family services, and now charter schools. And then after that moved to Philadelphia where I ran Philly Girls in Motion, which is a girls only sports-based youth development organization. Our goal was access and retention of girls, um, sports sampling and empowerment for young women in the city, which unfortunately there's a great discrepancy between access for young women, specifically young women of color in the city, comparative to their suburban counterparts. And then when you take those numbers and actually merge them together and compare them to their male counterparts, even that number is far below their male counterparts. So that's the first issue, um, that girls compared to their male peers are just far behind in opportunities and even farther behind in opportunities of quality. So when I say quality, I mean opportunities that are built for them Um, shaped for them, and that they have a voice and a say in. So the sports space historically has been built by males for males, and when females want to play, they are asked to play in that space. It's very, it would be very odd, not often that you see it the other way around. Um, The question I always ask is, when you're in a room with a a co-ed group, um, you ask folks how many people in this room have been coached by a, a man? and almost everyone will raise their hand. And then you ask how many people in this room have been coached by a woman? And you'll see probably like a quarter of the room and it's all the women, the quarter is made up of women in the room, right? And so the dynamic is just heavily male. Um, But then you see these other pieces of our society that actually hold girls back from sports. So there's a ton of barriers. There's um, cultural barriers dependent on what culture a young woman comes from, religious, um, her family's culture, her race. There's a a variety of different things that can hold women back there. There are um, issues with access in terms of financial barriers that women can't get in. And then there's just stigmas around sport unfortunately that still exists for young women that play sports. So we're sending them kind of these mixed messages around sports—really great and powerful and good for you—but at the same time, you're kind of butch or you're this or you're that. All these words that aren't what they want to be. And so it's 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 a work in progress. Um, people are starting to come to fight the cause, but a lot more work needs to be done.
1: Yeah, it's really good and. True. Yeah. Especially the part about, you know, how many, how many people have been coached by women and it's, it's not, uh, not enough. Um, absolutely. Well, let's uh, let, let's hop into these rapid fire questions. I'm excited to, to hear your guys's answers to these uh, Jill Jill, you start and then Megan, you can follow. Uh, here's my first one. Uh, who is your favorite coach that you ever played for? and describe them in three words. So I'll just give you an example. My favorite coach is my high school soccer coach, Coach Chug, and I would describe him as uh, lighthearted, competitive, and loving.
2: Mm. Uh, Favorite coach, high school softball coach, and he was my field hockey coach for two years, um, Tom Urbig. He is passionate. He is stubborn, and he is detail oriented.
0: (laughs) Um, so part of my journey is that I had a lot of really bad coaches, um, and really, or really mediocre coaches. Um, so I would say my favorite coach I ever played for was my dad. Um, and like not after sixth grade, you know, so it was early in my development, um, as a coach, he was joyful um he was uh encouraging and he was um uh focused on progress.
1: That's really good.
2: Hey Megan, you should tell Luke about your um part-time college soccer coach. then he'll understand the issue. (laughs) We were
0: just talking about, it makes me sound like I'm 150 years old, but, um, Uh when I played college soccer, when I got there, my first two years, we were still coached by somebody who was not a full-time faculty member at the university. Um, and it was because he liked it that way. He sort of had other coaching gigs and, and, and other things in his life. Um, but his life by the way, and it was, um, not until my junior year that we got a full-time coach that year we had an interim full-time coach and my senior year, we had a full-time coach, but she was full-time and expected to also coach the lacrosse team. So she was actually a lacrosse coach coaching the soccer team.
1: (laughs) Yeah. That. Yep. It wasn't
0: that long ago. It sounds like it was. No, that doesn't
1: surprise me. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Really unfortunate to say the least. Um, and yeah, that makes, makes sense why you didn't necessarily have, uh, an experience (laughs) with a great coach through college, um, for all of those reasons. Uh, here's, here's my next one. Uh, and Jill, you can start it. Uh, I wish I would have known blank before my first coaching experience.
2: (sighs) All the things I've learned from Megan Bartlett. (laughs) I know that's kiss uppie, but, um, I, I wish I knew, I wish I knew about the brain I wish I knew. I wish I knew that it was not, it was skill, not will. Um, because there were so many times that I got my, I lo- allowed myself to get frustrated at a kid who I thought was being intentional, and I just didn't know. Uh, yeah, mine is the brain, a hundred percent. I wish I
0: knew. I wish I knew more about the brain. In all aspects of my life, Mm -hmm. I could have used that. I mean, I don't understand why we don't teach people about the brain as part of our core educational experience, because it has such an impact on our lives.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That, that is, yeah, that's, that's the question. Why, why don't kids understand this too? It's really good. Here's my next one. Uh, I know I'm successful as a coach when blank.
2: I see smiles.
0: Yeah. I think kids are moving their bodies, uh, feeling connected and I, I think of it as sweat, smiles and stress. Um, they're sweating they're smiling and they can handle when the stress dial gets turned up a little, right. They can handle bottom of the ninth bases loaded down by three. Um, those scenarios.
1: That's fantastic. Uh, here's my last question. I've, I've asked this to every coach that I've interviewed, So the responses have been, have been really, really fascinating. And obviously you guys just mentioned, I think one of your answers, but what are the top three or four things that every coach, every sport at every level, they need to be educated on these things. If you just had to keep it to three or four.
2: So I would say, well, the brain we will hammer that one home again. Um, Their own triggers. Um, and I would say I'm a, this, I'm a huge proponent of circles of influence. I think coaches get burnt out because they often try to do too much. They, they put too much on themselves. Um, and when I say circles of influence, I mean it like a dartboard. And if they're the bullseye thinking of what levels of that bullseye they can actually successfully have influence over in whatever endeavor they're trying to achieve that day and being realistic about that and transparent with the other circles so that they can set those meaningful goals um, and not get get burned out um, or ask for the supports that they need. And so um, those would be my big ones.
0: I think I only have two, Um, team brain forever, Um, hashtag team brain. Um, But the second one and the understanding the brain crosses genders, races, ages, sports, um, competitive levels, everybody at every level should know about the brain. I think the other thing is they should, the other thing they should be trained to do is be reflective. We should teach coaches a reflective practice, right? How do you build the habit of reflection and how do you build the habit of reflection in a way that makes you question what you did and not blame the young people who, Didn't do the thing you wanted, you thought you told them to do, right? Like, how do you say, Well, this didn't go well? It's not the young person's fault necessarily. Like, what could I have done differently? Um, what was going on for me in that moment? So, uh, I think coaches should understand the brain and I think they should build the skill of reflection.
1: Um, yeah, that's that's so powerful, and and I just want to share one more thing that that i'm thinking of when you said that um i interviewed doug lamov and i mentioned that to you earlier and and he was just talking about uh the impact of forgetting on learning and and how even for everyone like we've forgotten almost everything we've ever learned in our life and that's the reality of it and our athletes are no different but the first thing that coaches do Usually when a kid, a kid forgets something is we blame them for it instead of understanding again, back to the brain, like literally how our brain functions and, and our capacity for memory, our, our, our trigger is, oh, dang it. Like, what, what are you doing? Were you not paying attention? What, where, in, instead of being reflective and, and understanding, like you were saying, oh, like why, why didn't, weren't they able to perform this? Now, what, what do I need to change as a coach? Uh, yeah, all of those things are so are so so essential. So I love that. Last thing Megan, will you just tell people uh where they can where they can learn more about We Coach and and get in contact with you guys?
0: Uh yeah, our website is weallcoach.com. Um we have team at weallcoach.com if you want to email us. Um we actually check it very religiously and get back to people. Um, we have a great team, um, so you'll hear from somebody, some amazing member of it, if you wanted to be in touch. Um, and then our Instagram, Twitter, et cetera, All we, all coach.
1: Coaches, thanks for listening to this episode, and thanks again to Jill and Megan for coming on to the podcast. If you'd like a copy of the show notes from today's episode, go to transformsport.org/podnotes to get a free PDF of the notes from today's episode. And if you enjoyed this episode or found it valuable, please take a minute to rate, review, and subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. And give us a shout out on Twitter, at CoachesClub underscore. Thanks for listening to the Coaches Club podcast powered by Transform Sport, where we believe great coaches transform lives, athletes deserve great coaches, and coaches deserve great training.